Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 108th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is exploring the safe field gap. I'm joined by Richard Chataway. He is the author of The Behavior Business, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business Success, the publisher is Harriman House. Richard is the CEO of the BVA Nudge Consulting Group UK and the founder of the Communications Science Group. Clients have included Lloyd's Banking Group, Google, and IKEA. He is also formerly a board member of the Association of Business Psychology, which is the voice of business psychology in the UK. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Oh, absolutely. So let's get rolling. What's the, the book about in, in, in essence, in a nutshell? Yeah, so so I guess, you know, that subtitle, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business Success, is is a good summary of really what the what the book is about. And and the opening line of the book is is a uh, if you're in business, you're in the business of behavior. And I guess as someone who's been working in applied behavioral science for about fifteen years or so, what uh, I try to do with the book is to is to illustrate some of the ways in which, you know, I guess some of those uh, more hidden influences or, or less well-known influences on our behavior that behavioral science tells us about can be applied in a business context. So so the book is really about, you know, some of the different challenges that you face in, in business and that, that, that people face in business, whether that's around creating products and services, um, you know, management and recruitment challenges, sales and marketing, uh, and so on. Uh, how behavioral science can help us address some of those challenges and some of the the ways in which it illustrates those hidden factors that, that might be at play. Okay. Well, one of those influences, of course, the, the role of emotions. Within the past year, the New York Times ran a nice long piece on just how important the emotion of disgust is. Um, and I don't want to give away the goods here, but uh, you, in writing about the fatty cigarettes ad campaign, you mentioned the role of disgust and how you could leverage that emotion. Could you share that with listeners and, and offer sure. your insights as to why disgust as an emotion is such a powerful trigger? 
Yeah, sure. So, so that was that's a really uh, interesting example. I guess from the very beginnings of when I started uh, working in applied behavioural science, which I guess without realising it. So, um, I was working for the Department of Health here in the UK on as a campaigns manager on, on anti-smoking communications, and um, and in fact, this was a campaign that wasn't actually run by the department, um, although it was funded by the department. It was a campaign that was run by a charity here in the UK called the British Heart Foundation. So it's a charity that addresses uh, the leading causes of heart disease. And um, and they had a strategist working there um, on the advertising campaign called Cake Waters, who um, then subsequently became an advisor to our campaign uh, and had a background in psychology. And the insight behind that particular campaign was that if you could create kind of a, a psychological connection or association between the act of smoking and that feeling of disgust, as you mentioned, then that could create a really sort of pow- a powerful Pavlovian response um, to cigarettes themselves. So, you know, effectively turning the the smokers' kind of um, disgust against the cigarette themselves and using that as a powerful motivator for people to quit. So, the way the campaign worked was it had a very um, very effective visual technique that was used both in in print advertising and in um, and in TV, uh, where um, the cigarette was made to look like an artery filled with fatty deposits um actually to create the visual i believe they used a, a, a combination of, of hummus and oatmeal um to make it look like a, a really horrible fatty um uh, artery that was you know that looked visually like a cigarette but then had a sort of slice in it like a, you would slice an artery with this fatty goo coming out the uh, the other end of it and um and that was incredibly effective campaign, one of the most effective campaigns, I think, that, that had ever been run in terms of the impact it had and creating that feeling of disgust and, and really, as I say, turning the smokers disgust against the, the the cigarettes themselves. So rather than making them feel bad themselves about the um, uh, about the act of smoking, but, but actually turning it against cigarettes and, and in particularly drawing that association between the act of smoking and the direct consequences on your health, so the build-up of those fatty deposits in your arteries. Yeah, no, I find that fascinating because disgust on the face, you know, one of the ways it shows is the nose wrinkles. You know, if something smells bad, you want to back away from it. So obviously cigarettes, you know, have smoke and uh, has an aroma. And if you can back away from the whole experience, then, yes, your campaign can achieve its objectives and no no small part. Uh, fascinating stuff. Are there some um, instances, the, the episode we're going to call it uh, Exploring the Safe Field Gap, I'm curious, in your research, you've seen some really stellar instances of where uh, what people say and how they feel, what they do, uh, just doesn't hold together. Yeah, so so it's a really, I mean, the company I work for, uh, BVA Nudge Consulting, we're, we're a division of, of BVA, which is a market research company. And um, and so, you know, we, we conduct an awful lot of market research. And, you know, that is hugely insightful in terms of understanding you know people's motivations and what's driving their behavior and so on but one thing that's that's very clear is that you know simply asking people to account for their actions gets you you know perhaps 50 percent of the way towards the true reasons uh, yeah. that explain the behavior <laughs> um and and the reality is that you need to do other things and you need to observe behavior as well in order to truly understand um you know what what is driving those those changes in behavior so you know there are lots of you know i guess where again where i first got interested in this and observed it was was working on smoking um and what we saw there was for example you know i i sat in countless kind of focus groups with smokers where they would say oh you know i'll quit when i'm ready um you know the cigarettes are only harming them harming myself um i'm not you know um you know 
coming up with all of these post-rationalizations for their smoking habit um, when they knew very consciously or, or you know, they, they were completely aware of the fact that, you know, smoking is harmful and, and, it, and it has very many associated um, health risks. And, and so we're able to come up with these, you know, counterfactuals to explain away their smoking behavior and their smoking habits. And so, you know, that, that, that difference between, you know, if you like the, the, the actual, the conscious um, reasons for smoking and the non-conscious reasons for smoking um, is, was really fascinating to me. And, and so, uh, you know, being able to sit there and say, yes, well, I know, I know it's bad for me, but I still do it for all (laughs) these reasons. And so, um, you know, for us, that was really insightful in terms of then being able to apply some of the knowledge around that to change the way that we approach smoking. So, um, and, and convincing people of the, of the merits of quitting. So it became less about saying, um, you know, this is why smoking is bad because to some extent that battle's been won. Uh, most smokers do know it's bad for them and more about at a focusing on the impact on other people, particularly your family. So, so you're saying, you know, well, your smoking habit may be harmful to you and you can post rationalize that in terms of, well, I'm not harming anyone else. That's not true. Um, you know, if you are, um, a, um, uh, you know, parents, for example, you know, the idea of you not being around to see your kids grow up because of your smoking is an incredibly powerful motivator and one that you can't post rationalize and you can't just explain away. That's a direct impact on, on, on your family and your loved ones. And then the, the second thing as well was moving the emphasis around from saying, you know, trying to demonize the smokers, if you like, you know, to say, this is bad, you should stop doing it, um, to here's all the support and services that are available to help um, and particularly, obviously, in the UK, where we have a you know a nationalised health service, we're able to direct people to to those free services that people can access um, to get help um, with with quitting smoking. So, um, so that was a real you know that's an example of how those insights you know manifested in research, but then also how we were able to apply them um, to to achieve great success. So that you know that change in strategy for the campaign um, resulted in us achieving the. Um, the target of um, reducing smoking rates to twenty percent or less um, two years earlier than the than the government had had um, had set as a target. So um, so it proved to be a hugely effective change in strategy. Good. Well, I, I love the term counterfactuals. It makes me think of uh, a quip from J P Morgan who said, "A a man makes a decision for two reasons." The good reason and the real reason, <laughs> and, and, and the the good reasons the rational alibi, and the the real reasons often driven by emotions. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. It's, uh, I, so, I like, so, there's a great yeah. analogy that uh, Jonathan Haidt has, which, which you might be aware of, of the of the rider and the elephant. Um, yes, where yeah. you know the the analogy that he draws there is that our sort of non-conscious system one. Um, behaviors are, are the elephant and our and our conscious brain is the is the rider of an elephant you know we think we're in control of where the elephant's going but if it wants to go in a particular direction it's going in that direction there's not much we can do about it um, well ha- having ridden an elephant in india i can tell you i definitely didn't have control <laughs> over the elephant nor, nor did i even imagine that i did um, <laughs> you're a braver man than i am i don't think i would i don't think i'd even try <laughs> <laughs> so um speaking of behavior over time there's obviously emotions in the moment, but there's also the big five personality model. Hmm. Um, and you, you mentioned the book, I don't remember if it was your study or one you came across, but it was about Hilton Hotels and how you got 
in that case, also great results based on trying to, you know, understand and work with the big five model. Is there anything you can say or offer on that front or, or maybe this question involved research you weren't privy to? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that research was actually done by um, a team at Cambridge University um, uh, whose, I mean, some of their research then was subsequently kind of co-opted and used um uh, or the approach certainly was co-opted and used for, uh, by Cambridge Analytica, which is, as you may be aware, yeah. <laughs> obviously became a, a hugely controversial um, in terms of their applications. But I guess the insight behind it um, remained true. And, um, you know, and, and this is, I guess, one one of the things I do cover in the book is about the ethics and the ethical use of behavioural science. And, and you know, for, to my mind, you know, to sort of summarise, I guess, the, the, the argument there, it's about the ends rather than the means, you know, um, the outcomes you're trying to achieve in terms of change your behavior. Um, you know, that those are the, that's the ethical question you should be answering. But, but in terms of that, that big five model, the ocean model, um, you know, that's um, an established uh, psychological model whereby, um, or psych- uh, you know, set of uh, factors that can be um, assessed through, um, uh, through personality based questionnaires, um, where um, you can get get a good um, indication of certain behavioural traits through those five personality based uh, measures. So um, openness, uh, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and, and neuroticism. That hence the the ocean acronym. And uh, and what was really interesting about the work that was done at Cambridge was that um, uh, uh, was that they were able to um, once they had measures of individuals in terms of um, their um, propensities on that scale uh, or, or using those five factors, um, they could then tailor advertising based on those personality uh, uh, traits and that proved to be much more effective. Um, so, you know, for example, um, one of the ads um, was p- specifically tailored to people who scored highly on the agreeable on the scale. Um, so they meant, meant they were a bit more um, oh, sorry, the extroversion scale meant they were a bit more outgoing. Wanted, you know, one of the key things they were looking for on a holiday was the ability to socialise, for example. So the ads would feature pictures of you know people playing volleyball together or you know socialising in the bar, etc. And that that really appealed to that that uh, that motivational side. Um, for those people who were more uh, perhaps a little more introverted and, and were looking more for for um, downtime and relaxation. Uh, on their own in a ho- in in a holiday, the ads would feature things like the spa facilities and you know the ability to to, to relax and unwind, um, um, and you know somewhat unsurprisingly, they found that the kind of click through rates and engagement rates for those ads online were much more effective once they were tailored based on those personality techniques. So you know, yeah, that's no, what. I, I, yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I just I love the example. I wish I'd had that uh, data at my hand because I remember I was doing work for a major uh, grocery store chain and I was trying to argue that they should employ that model and that I could help them do so. But uh, they just thought it was crazy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, it could have made them money. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, really? Because I think we have... You know, I, I'm not sure we have a term for this particular bias, but there's definitely a bias particularly that, that exists in the marketing and, and advertising industry, which is, you know, we think of people that are demographically similar as being similar in terms of their behaviours and in, some, in terms of what, what motivates them. But, 
you know, I think, you know, we only need to look at people we know and, and our friends and family, for example. And you can have two people who are on the face of it are demographically incredibly similar, you know, maybe from the same same backgrounds, you know, grew up in the same place, same age, etc. But are completely different in terms of their preferences, in terms of brands and and um, uh, and their behaviours in their in their everyday lives. So what is a bigger factor and a bigger determinant of people's behaviours is some of these these innate or somewhat innate personality traits. So, so you know, why don't we use those as a, as a measure and, and as a way of, of identifying um, particular audiences? And I think, you know, the, the other thing, and this is something I talk about in the book as well, is that, um, you know, in most categories uh, for any brand or product, um, you know, people are... are Quite similar in the in the factors that they are looking for in the drivers and whatever might be the drivers of their preference for a particular brand or product over another. So your goal in marketing is to make sure that your brand is associated with those particular factors. So whether it's price, whether it's you know ease of use, whether it's you know even even some non you know fairly. Uh, non-conscious drivers like you know color or or, or perceived quality um, you know your your goal in marketing is to make sure that those associations are stronger for your brand than they are for anyone else in that category and that's going to be the big driver of purchase you know we like to think of you know in a category you know this brand appeals to uh, I don't know um, soccer mums or this brand appeals to you know uh, high net worth individuals whatever it might be but um, and to some extent that might be true, but but the reality is, is there's going to be some other drivers that are going to be much more effective in terms of understanding uh, or in terms of driving purchase, and, and that's what you should be optimizing for. Yeah, and really making the connection with them. I, I wholeheartedly agree with uh, you know your concerns about the, the lack of effectiveness of just sticking with demographic data. I often have told people in business speeches, you know, frankly, if you looked at the demographic profile of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, they would be seemingly the same guy. Yeah, totally. Uh, but they most, yeah. most assuredly were not. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, that's a good so, example. Um, I think. I think as well. You know, when we um, one thing that I, I one example I give in the book is about if you if you do start targeting on demographics and you do try to segment markets and audiences based on demographics, by necessity, what you're doing is you're is you're regressing to the mean in terms of the average. So you know, there's a there's a um, uh, an example I give in the book whereby um, in Australia, where I used to live. Um, every I think it's every two years they produce a national census, and when the Australian Bureau of Statistics, who produce the census, um, reveal their data, they release a, a press release which which talks about what, what the average Australian looks like. So they basically take lots of you know demographic um, characteristics and they say the average Australian is a woman aged 43 living in this particular part of Australia who earns this amount and has this type of career, for example, or this kind of job has 2.4 children or whatever the, the average would be. And so what happens when they release this press release is that all of the journalists go out and try and find someone who is an example of the average Australian, um, you know, to illustrate the article with. And they can never find anyone. <laughs> there's no one who fits all of that criteria because you've averaged for so many different variables that there's no one who actually 
fits those. Um, and I think that's really illustrative of some of the dangers and, and risks of, of kind of time. Yeah, no, I, I remember that very well from the book. I put a smiley face and an exclamation point in the margin <laughs> ne- next to the conclusion of that uh, particular exercise. So, so we've been talking a bit on the consumer side. I want to switch over to the employee side. Uh, at one point in the book, you had this wonderful uh, illustration using a, uh, a TED Talk video from YouTube about the, the monkeys and they're in a cage and some <laughs> yeah. get fed grapes and some get fed cucumbers. But the deeper point, I think, and I'm not sure if you use the term, is you know we're wired to have a inequality bias. In other words, mm. inequality, lack of fairness, really riles us up. And uh, can you tell us about the video and what you've seen as the import, uh, including particularly on the, the side of employees, perhaps? Yeah, sure. So, um, so there's a video, actually, I was first introduced to by Rory Sutherland, who uh, I believe has been a previous guest of, of your podcast. Yes, he has been. Uh, and who kindly wrote the forward to my book. So I worked with Rory at, at Ogilvy, and, but I've you know, sort of been a follower of his work for, for a number of years prior to that. And um, and he and he's still a, a friend of mine, and um, and um, yeah, the, the the research is was conducted by uh, or the the video from uh, that's used in this TED talk is, is part of a TED talk from uh, Franz Duval, who's a, um, a biologist and uh, uh, evolutionary um, uh, psychologist, and he. Um, uh, conducts these experiments on fairness uh, with a range of different animals, but this particular video features monkeys, uh, capuchin monkeys, who are one of the, the sort of smarter and 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 higher order apes, I guess. And um, they uh, they do this experiment whereby um, they kind of re- they reward these monkeys for completing a simple task, and the simple task is that they need to pass a stone to the experimenters, the human experimenter. And they have two monkeys in, in cages next to each other, in, in glass perspex cages, um, uh, and they're only in them for the course of the experiment. Uh, and um, uh, and they, they, they know each other, these two monkeys, they're in the same social group. And when um, one monkey completes a task, they get fed uh, cucumber, um, uh, which they can eat and they like, but they have a strong preference, monkeys, for grapes because grapes are much sweeter and more delicious than cucumber is. So um, uh, what happens is in the experiment is, you know, the first monkey completes the task, hands the stone over to experiment, and gets fed the piece of cucumber, fine. Then the second monkey does the same task and gets fed a grape. And the first monkey sees this and think, thinks, oh, okay, I can get a grape for this task, great. And so then it hands the, um, the stone to the experiment again and, um, and it gets cucumber again. And then the second monkey does the same task and gets grape. And so the monkey sees that, you know, it's, it's getting a, a, a raw deal in terms of its reward for completing the same task. And it starts getting quite angry. And um, and it's quite funny to watch. Um, but, um, you know, because the next time the, the uh, experimenter gives the piece of cucumber to the, the monkey, it throws it out of the, <laughs> out of the opening of the cage, <laughs> in basically at the experimenter. And the, at the beginning of the, the video, you see the experimenters wearing the, a, a sort of a, a perspex mask, and you, you wonder why they're doing it for the purpose of the experiment, and you realise that's why. And, um, and anyway, you know, then the, the, the point is kind of made that, that this concept of fairness and the concept of is someone getting a better deal than we are for, for the same effort... Um, is something that's hardwired into us. It's part of our evolution. And, and you know, uh, in the video, Franz de explains that they've done this experiment, not just with monkeys, but with birds and dogs. And they've seen the same effect, you know, that uh, our innate sense of fairness and our innate 
injustice that's uh, being treated unfairly or sense of injustice being treated unfairly is, is innate. It is something that's, that's hardwired into us and is a very powerful motivator of human behaviour. So, um, so, you know, with that in mind, how, how we think about rewarding our employees, for example, uh, for completing the task, you know, the, you know, the very fact that in many organisations you will have two people with the same role who could have a large differential in salary, um, for example, or, or benefits. Yep. Um, you know, that's something that we really need to take account of because it, it will be a very strong driver of, of unhappiness and dissatisfaction um, and, and and therefore, you know, can have an impact on retention and staff retention, for example. Um, yeah. The idea of a, a fair day's a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, you know, that's that's what it's all about. And and so, um, uh, you know, those those factors in similarly, you know, the I guess how I use the example in the book is talking about particularly customer experience, you know. Um, when we perceive that we've been given a, a sub-optimal or a, or a poor customer experience, or our um, our complaints uh, about um, how we uh, are treated are not being heard, it, it activates this sense of unfairness, and we're very likely to respond negatively to it. I had an instance this week of of some some pretty poor customer experience from an airline, and I was raging for the next two hours about about it, about the injustice <laughs> of it and um and you know and it marred my the entire experience that i had this this one interaction and the very fact that you know it wasn't my what i feel was my valid complaint wasn't acknowledged and and i and i got no apology that was the, one of the things that, that particularly made me irate about it so um you know these are um these are, as I say, really important factors that are hardwired into our brains that we can't, you know, for good evolutionary reasons, you know, uh, we can't stop ourselves feeling. So they need to be taken into account. Yeah, well, I, I one time, I guess, inadvertently did such an experiment. I was the manager of a homemade ice cream parlor across from Widener Library in Harvard Square. And I had a repeat customer who was really wonderful and very you know, nice person to interact with. And so one time I gave her an unusually large ice cream cone, larger than those of the other people I was serving. <laughs> and just made the point, yeah, you, I'm a human being across the counter here. If you want to treat me nicely, yeah, I'll, I'll notice. Um, one last thing, just to bring home the employee side. I mean, we're obviously in a situation now where the economy is skewered and we've never had such high inequality in terms of income. You mm. know, CEO pay is enormous compared to the average worker. We've got things like Jeff Bezos blasting off into outer space, literally and figuratively, based on his income level. I'm curious if your group has had any opportunity to try to work with companies, uh, frankly, the executive team acknowledging that there could be some friction, some jealousy, some demotivation going on seeing the pay gap. any, any opportunity you've had there or anything that you could fantasize in terms of how you might try to uh, reconcile that or, or yeah, so, some of the in- influence emotionally? Yeah, so I guess we haven't done so much directly on the general pay gap between, you know, sort of levels within an organization. Um, where we have done some work um, has been around things like, for example, the gender pay gap and, and also, sure. um, you know, a... a uh, challenges around you know certain roles where there is a strong bias towards. Uh, interesting, we worked with an organisation a, a couple of years ago where um, there was a you know, there was a one as- one role within the organisation where there was a very strong male bias in terms of the the workforce. So I think it was uh, potentially eighty percent male, but then there was another uh, role within the organisation 
where it was 80% female. And and both were causing challenges to the organisation um, because of you know one of the the eighty percent female role was was uh, an HR based function, and the eighty percent male uh, 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 role was a um, was a uh, financial sort of um, trading and investment based role, and so. Um, so there was a real um, challenge because of the the, the kind of on both sides um, because of that that gender imbalance in both roles. So um, you know I guess that isn't doesn't really go to the heart of the fairness question necessarily. Although you know you could obviously if you're uh, say a woman applying for the, the male dominated roles you might feel uh, and didn't weren't successful you might feel the sense of unfairness that uh, sense of unfairness that you, you can get that role and feel that there is a, the roles are clearly a bias against women um, and vice versa. But um, but it was more about you know I guess some of the ways in which you can. You can remove those gender biases through the the recruitment application process, and sure. Um, well, I, I bet I bet the financial roles were better compensated. Just a guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, <laughs> you know, if you were to combine the two roles and you were to look at the gender pay gap there, then yeah, absolutely, it was absolutely enormous. But um, but there were also aspects. You know, what 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 was clear was that for the same role on the on the investment side, for example, women were being paid less. Um, uh, Sure. And so, um, you know, that was a key factor within it. Um, and so it was a question of, you know, not only addressing that, which to some extent isn't really a behavioral question. It's more of a, uh, it's more of a, you know, I guess, a, um, uh, a um, remuneration question and a financial question. But, um, but uh, there is a, you know, there were, there were ways in which, you know, we, we were helping them to, to minimise the the potential gender bias within the interview process, I've actually been, you know, in a similar kind of vein, um, talking to uh, a friend recently who's who's in the technology world uh, as a woman working in tech industry, where obviously there is has yeah. some time been quite a historic kind of gender bias, and um, and we were talking about ways in which um, you know her company, simple ways in which her company could could try and address that through their recruitment process and. And um, I was struck by an example I read recently, which I think was from Uber, who who obviously had some high-profile issues around uh, sexual discrimination and, and certain behaviour within within their um, within their organisation. And one of the ways in which they sought to address that was they made it mandatory that for every interview um, that there had to be a woman as part of the panel um, for the interview process, and they effectively Good. were given a power of veto if there was any. If you like red flags or anything that they they felt made them made it a particular male candidate unsuitable, um, you know if you think about particularly obviously when they're interviewing for drivers at Uber, um, you know safety and uh, and security of, of passengers is absolutely paramount. So um, so and and we talked about this and and it's it's something that that she suggested as being adopted by that company is is that they will be. Um, Adding a uh, a woman to every interview panel that they have in future. Um, oh, I think that that's a good move, and the, and the veto option to make sure that that those red flags actually get acted on. Exactly, because you know, uh, as a man, it's not something you could you could potentially. I mean, unless it was patently obvious, um, you know, you might not you might not pick up on some of those things. So. Yeah, no. There's always there's always values, attitudes, assumptions, um, yeah, that people aren't necessarily aware of. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So you know those kind of things. Um, I think um, you know we have, we have done projects in in those kind of fields. Um, you know, I guess the way we differentiate our work at, at BBN Consulting is about um, 
uh, you know, we, we, we distinguish between what we call nudge marketing and nudge management. And, and nudge marketing is, is primarily around addressing um, behaviors of people external to your organization, which is most commonly customers um, in a business context. And then um, uh, nudge uh, management is more about behaviors of people within your organization, you know, as it yeah, relates no, to m- recruitment. Makes sense. So. Yeah. Customer experience, employee experience. Um, both of them fascinating things. Well, mm. I want to thank you, Richard, so much for uh, being on the show today. This has been episode 108, Exploring the Safe Field Gap. My guest, Richard Chataway, he is the author of The Behavior Business, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business Success. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to New Books Network's website and searching under the show's name. Again, that's, of course, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, since we've been talking about the safe field gap and whether or not people are honest with themselves, I like this quote from Mark Twain who said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Until next time, take care and be well.